All God's people said? Amen. What a blessing today. Thank you, uh, Dan, and thank you, uh, Alex, for leading us in musical worship, bringing us to the throne and saying to the Lord, feed me from your word, which is what we're going to do now. If you have a little one through grade four and you'd like them to be in an age-appropriate service, you can dismiss them now to the foyer. Your teachers are out there waiting for you. We'd love for you to keep them here. If you want to do that, too, feel free to keep your children with you. Uh, for the rest of you, if you would, or those who are staying, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I pray that you've been in the Word this week. If you have not, there's a way that you can do that daily. We provide that for you there on the welcome table in the foyer. Please grab yourself uh, together in the Word, trifold, put it in your Bible, begin to read verse by verse through the Bible yearly, and you'll be uh, where the Lord wants you to be as you walk with Him, understanding His desire for you, understanding his law for your life, and, and being able to hold your life up to his holy standard, and the blessings and understanding that he would have you have will be yours, so let me encourage you to do that. Like you, if you would, open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1, we're going to be reading uh, all the way through this last chapter of 1 Corinthians 16, this has been a remarkable letter for us, an encouraging time, I pray for you, as if you're comments or any indication, it's been a time of growth for you as it is for me, as you are held captive by what the Lord's teaching me. That's how I, people say, well, how do you decide what you're going to teach? Well, it's uh, whatever the Lord's teaching me, that's what I teach to you, and so this has been a blessing for me as well. Look at verse 1, as Paul begins to wrap up his thoughts, and it very, uh, very similar to what we saw in, in Romans, uh, has some final instructions. So I've just labeled this income, itinerary, and instruction. So uh, all eyes. Now that doesn't happen that often because I'm not smart enough to do that all the time for the word, but you get it this time. In income, itinerary, and instructions. That's what Paul's kind of laying out. That's how he lays out his, this last chapter of this letter, and so that's how we'll do it as well. Look at verse 1 now, if you would, and we'll read all the way through verse 23. Now concern, verse 24, rather. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Verse 3, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Verse 4, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Verse 5, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may spend uh, send me on my way wherever I may go. Verse 7, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. Verse 8, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Verse 9, for a wide door of effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Verse 10, now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Verse 11, so let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. Verse 12, now, but now concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Verse 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, uh, that they were the first fruits in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Verse 16, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Verse 17, I rejoice 
over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. Verse 18, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Verse 19, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that's in their house. Verse 20, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 21, the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so we come then to the conclusion of this wonderful letter. But as we arrive at this chapter 16, we've pointed out before, as we've broken down the entire letter, this letter begins with Paul addressing the church to be generous with material things. And so by addressing then and beginning this subject of money, he's going to pick up right here again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, more at length, and give a model of New Testament giving, and so we'll deal with it proportionately. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, man, we came on the wrong day, he's going to talk about money, understand that in nine years that I've been with you, I've done that all of two times, two series in nine years. And so you just happen to be unlucky if that's how you look at yourself coming here on this day when it could have been any other day of the week, which uh, any other Sunday of the month that you would have missed. So anyway, we don't do it that often, but we teach verse by verse. So when we get to a verse by verse teaching that deals with money, that's what we do. And so that's what we're going to do today. Now we've noted as we've gone through the letter that God desires the purity of the church. He desires it to be pure in doctrine. He wants it to be pure in thought and in conduct, and he promises blessing and uh, and encouragement for obedience, and he promises chastening for disobedience. And so he brings Paul along to address things that need addressing, and here he begins with money. And because he's going to spend two chapters in 2 Corinthians dealing with a topic at length, he only spends a few verses here addressing it, and so we'll deal with it then in proportion. So I think it's important to point out the obvious. This chapter seems a little plain in comparison to chapter 15, doesn't it? I mean, it's not a sin to notice that. I mean, as you come out of chapter 15, you're like, oh my word. I mean, at least I was. As you get to the end of chapter uh, 15, you've come away with probably what could arguably be declared as one of the most wonderfully encouraging passages in all of the New Testament concerning our future. And really lays out very clear some principles about how that transformation is to occur and and the victory that is ours. The last two sections, particularly resurrection transformation of our fleshly bodies and how that's supposed to be, the mechanics of it, the form of it, and then the resurrection triumph, our final triumph. And so those things are marvelous. And we come off of that and we come into this, it just seems kind of plain. And I think as we come off those last two, it's so refreshing, it's so hope-filled, it's so encouraging. It can really renew us, it can strengthen us, and I hope it did for you as we read through there, that you were encouraged in your walk, that you were uh, encouraged in your hope of the future and all that has in store for you that is as sure as you are sitting here today and that we meditate on that reality of those of that future uh those of us who are in christ it's just a marvelous thing to think about but as we think about the passages of scripture and i want to draw this uh to your attention i think it's important the passages of scripture that inform us on the things to come uh, there's a general principle that helps us understand why we're given those glimpses uh, and that principle is this and you can find this in your notes if you're a note taker the pattern of the Holy Spirit is that he gives us a glimpse of our sure, secure, wonderful future to motivate us for the responsibilities that we've been given now. That's really the issue. As you come to the end of that passage, 
and you think of that marvelous stuff, realize that we're given those things so that we will be faithful in what we've been given to do now. It's an encouragement to, to stay the course. Life can be discouraging, life can be tough. If you're a believer here, it can be tough. If you're a believer in other countries, excessively so. And so we read those sure hopes, believers read those sure hopes, and throughout the centuries, readers have read them, uh, believers have read them and been encouraged. Now, just a few illustrations of that principle, as you've had time, I think, to write that down. I'll give you some things so you can kind of begin to see that in Scripture as you read through. 2 Corinthians 5, 4 through 9, that's a very general support of that principle, and so I'm going to read it to you, and we're going to see it, of course, in just a few weeks, but Paul says this, For indeed, while we were in this tent, we groaned, being burdened. So the tent, of course, speaking of this physical body you're in now, it's a burden to be in it. We don't want to be unclothed. It's considered being unclothed because being clothed is being clothed with the glorified body. So Paul says, listen, while we're in this tent, we groan, we're burdened. We don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And we just went through all of that and you understand all those terms. So uh, verse five says this. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us to us the spirit as a pledge. And so that sure hope of being clothed, that sure hope of leaving this tent and moving into that glorified body, uh, that has been given to us by the Lord. We've been prepared for that because we're believers, and uh, the Holy Spirit's been given to us to assure us that that's indeed the case for our future. Therefore, he says, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And verse 7 says this, for we walk by faith and not by sight. So, when we're here, we're absent from the Lord. That's obvious. We're not in his presence. His Holy Spirit is here with us, but we're not in the presence of the Lord himself. So uh, we're in we have good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. For we are of good courage, I say, and rather to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And so as Jim spoke about this morning, to be strong and courageous, there's ways and reasons why we're courageous, why we, are, why we understand what uh, is the case, uh, is because what is waiting for us for our future. And so that last little, that last little instruction, it says, uh, rather be absent from the body, be at home with the Lord, therefore, so because that's true, see, because we know what's going to happen at the moment of our death, because we know that we have the Holy Spirit as an assurance of that deliverance from this tent from this being unclothed to clothed because we have that assurance in the Holy Spirit be of good courage so don't fear don't fear in the difficult times that you have don't fear in the body as it's breaking down don't fear in what the future may hold or whatever it is okay have as your ambition then to be pleasing to the Lord because this is true then be pleasing to the Lord whether absent from him or before him we desire to be pleasing to the Lord because that's all true it's a motivation to do those things that's a sure uh a reality of your future life, this is where you're going to go, so be of good courage and make as your ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. It just, just follows, doesn't it? Because you're going to see him, and he's going to deliver all of his promises just as he said he would. Now, 1 Timothy 4.8 is another great place to look at that. Here, Paul is telling Timothy as a young pastor, uh, perhaps pastor in the church in Ephesus at that point, verse 8, he says this, Bodily discipline is only of a little profit, so, you know, working out is good, but it's of little, a little bit of profit. But God, in comparison to godliness, that's very profitable. It's profitable for all things. Since it holds promise for this present life, so the life you're currently living in, the time in your word that you spend and all the things that you do to, uh, to understand who the Lord is and be pleasing to him, that's good time 
spent now and also for the life to come. So that just continues on into the presence of the Lord. This desiring to understand the Lord and be godly, that just moves right into this next life that you'll have with him. Verse 9, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially for believers. Now, I've written that passage to numerous pastor friends of mine over the years who are going through difficult times. And I've used that to encourage my own self as I go through difficult times in the ministry. It's this reason we labor and strive. It's not because people will always appreciate you. It's not because you're going to have a trouble-free time in the ministry. It's not because things are going to be easy all the time. It's not because your health is always going to be perfect or whatever. The reason we do what we do in the ministry is because... We have fixed our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. I fix my hope on that future hope. And because I do that, then that gives me encouragement to just say, okay, I'm just going to continue in the struggle because someday I won't have to do it anymore. Someday I'm going to be delivered from this body. Someday I'm going to be delivered from having to oversee the, the flock, and it'll be, that flock will be perfected, and it'll be before the Lord, and we'll worship him forever. And that's a great day, and I look forward to that. And I know that's a sure hope, and so that's my encouragement. And we know for sure we have our hope fixed on this. So, so laboring and striving for godliness and for the kingdom is profitable for this life and the one to come. And those things follow you and are laid up for you in your reception. And so there's just this marvelous hope. And so we just continue to do the labor that we're supposed to do. Second uh, Peter again follows in the same thing. It really has two parts that include this uh, knowing of the future. It says this, Second Peter 3.10. It says, uh, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So that's a for sure. The Lord says, okay, this is how it's going to all end. And uh, I was in a conversation with someone the other day and I said uh, something about the, the earth being destroyed. And he goes, what do you mean? It's just going to be remade or, you know, is it going to be destroyed? That's really the question. Well, I don't, I don't, that doesn't appear to be the question here. <laughs> I mean, if it's simple language, um, the Lord's going to come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. That sounds like it's going to be destroyed and then remade. Okay, so it's pretty simple there. Um, verse, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, then here's the question. So because you know this is the case and your believers living here kind of in a transitory manner, right? Because we're strangers and aliens in a strange place. Because that's the case, then Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And so it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? I mean, so how much of our life should we be laying up here? Because it's all going to be just burned up. Now look at verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of, the, of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, Here's the, he asks his own question, doesn't it? Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Okay, so because you know then that the sure end of all material things, you are motivated to give yourself to holy conduct and to godliness, and it's implied uh, those are the things that last. And so this righteousness is to come. You're to give yourself to that now because you know there's a new heaven and a new earth coming where righteousness dwells. Then be peaceful and spotless and blameless. Okay, you see how that is? You get a picture of the future, whether it's a, a pretty difficult future or a great future. And then we're said, okay, because that's the case, then your actions then are to follow. Philippians chapter 3, and I'm just barely skimming the surface of this, beloved. This is all the way through uh, the New Testament. We see this over and over again. But Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. Is that true for you? I mean, that really defines you, doesn't it? 
Your citizenship is not here. Although you live here, your true citizenship is in heaven, just like your true self is not uh, the identity people perhaps see now. In the inconsistency and with the way we live our life, that's not your true identity. Your true identity is you're hidden with Christ. Your true identity is that you are seated with Christ. Your true identity is that you are made new. You're resurrected with Christ, a new man. That's your true you, okay? And your true citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity of the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, so because that's the case, and you know that that's the future, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way stand from the Lord, my beloved. Now, I call you beloved all the time. And I've been teased about that over the years, 20 plus years. People make, I, I had somebody in, in the New York church, they made a copy of a, uh, they made a recording. They sampled me saying that, uh, how, the many, many hundreds of times I said that, and then just played it all in one long stretch. And of course, everybody got a big laugh out of it. But I say that because, number one, I love you. But most of all, number two, because that is your name. The Lord looks at you that way. You realize that? So this morning, if you came in and you're having a difficult time and maybe you're not looking at yourself like the Lord would look at you, understand that beloved is your name. And the Lord refers to you that way, and the epistles, the writers of the epistles refer to you that way, beloved. So be encouraged in that. But here's the thing. As we think about Philippians 3, 20 through 4, 1, because your true residency and identity are in heaven, and because you're going to be transformed so that you can dwell there, and because the Lord has the power to subject everything to his own will, so it's not even difficult for him to do that, don't waver. Be confident and fixed on doing his will. See, Because you know the future, then be faithful in this present thing. Colossians 3, we're about done with this little illustration. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Did you know that? That describes you. Okay. Regardless of what your day-to-day -day interaction might be and the struggles you may be having right now, the reality of it is your citizenship's in heaven. The reality of it is you are beloved. The reality of it is... The reality of it is you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Verse 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now that's, that's the reality of your future. Your present reality is your life is hidden with Christ and God in heaven. That's you. That belongs to you. You're hidden with Christ. And your future reality is that you're going to be revealed with the glory that is that's going to come to you through Christ and the work that you've done through Christ, that's your, that's your future. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, greed, which amounts to idolatry. So, because the reality of your life is that you died to this life, and your life for the future is hidden with Christ and God, but it's hidden there and it's not been revealed yet, and people, you know, didn't think much of Jesus, and they still think of him as a suffering servant, as a baby, and crucified at the mercy of men, and they don't think much of you either, okay? The reality of your life is it's hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ is revealed in all of his glory, you're going to be revealed too with the glory he's reserved for you. That's the reality of your life, okay? That's a snapshot of your future. So, because that's true... Let your present flesh be as dead to the appetites of this world. Because it's true, you memorize this passage, if you're having trouble with your thought life, you're having trouble with whatever it is, any of these things, see, you allow yourself to understand and meditate on your future, and then that motivates you then to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So that's a common theme. 
and a, a principle from the Holy Spirit as he carried the writers along. And it really, a glimpse into the future just lays great responsibility on the present. And so when we see our resurrection transformation of our fleshly bodies there at the end of chapter 15, and when we see our resurrection triumph, our final victory, at, right at the end of chapter 15, and the wonderful things God's prepared for us, it's supposed to have a tremendous impact on the way we live right now. And so that's how Paul transitions his readers from 1 Corinthians 15, 57, and 58. After all that, he says this in verse 57. Because it's true, because you have this final victory, because the gospel is so effective, because of all these things, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because this is the victory that is sure for you who are believers, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So your thankfulness for the wonderful reality of your future is revealed in your steadfastness, immovability, and abounding in this work and labor for the Lord. So you express that, you're encouraged in it, because you're secure future, see. And then he says this, he moves right into verse 1 of chapter 16, and you can look there if you would. Now, concerning the collection for the saints. And so I think it's safe to say that being steadfast, immovable, and always abounding would include how we put our money in the collection. Because it just follows. I mean, think about it. If our citizenship is in heaven, and this material world and its works are all going to be destroyed, and we're going to be delivered from this world with all of its sorrow and all of its letdowns and all of its failings and the failings of this body with a transformation that is so wonderful it defies description, we should be making some important decisions on where we invest, right? I mean, it just follows, doesn't it? I mean, if we're supposed to respond in steadfastness and toil and, and be immovable and all that stuff and everything else we just saw, um, we're to stand firm in the Lord this way and to consider your earthly bodies dead to immorality and impurity and passion, evil desire, greed, uh, which amounts to idolatry. And if, we're, uh, if we understand that the day of the Lord's going to come like a thief and he's going to destroy all the material things, there shouldn't be anything that you buy, beloved, that you can't say when you buy it on the day you give all the money for it or whatever, this is all going to be burned up and I'm perfectly fine with that. I got no problems with any of that. And whatever my portfolio is and however big it may be and however much security you think you have, you should look at that and you should look at that monthly statement and you, just say, you should just say very calmly and with no problems whatsoever, that is all going to be burned up in a flash and I'm going to leave it behind and I've got no problems with that, okay? So if we come to this point, it says, now concerning the collection for the saints, and we understand that being steadfast and movable is going to include this, and Paul puts it right on the heels of saying, hey, this is our response to the fact that we don't even, our citizenship isn't even here, then we're okay with that, right? I mean, that was Jesus' whole point in Matthew 6, wasn't it? I mean, that's precisely what he said. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, we live here, and we're going to see a passage in just a minute. You don't have anything the Lord hasn't provided to you, Okay? And some of you have more, some of you have less, it's okay. I mean, you're not more spiritual because you have less and less spiritual because you have more. The Lord has provided richly all things. We're going to see that in just a minute. But the fact of the matter is this. Jesus was very clear. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So... The question is, how do you store up treasure in heaven? And the answer is found in the very first verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. And many other places, which we're going to look at as we go into 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. We'll do a big background on all of this stuff. 
But the fact of the matter is it's pretty simple. You're living here now, yes. You have things that are part of your life that you need. Some are needs, some are not necessarily needs. They're wants. They're all part of your life. Paul addressed the reality of that issue with Timothy and his son in the faith, 1 Timothy 6, 17. He says this, listen, as you pastor people, instruct them, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now, in comparison, okay, all Americans are rich in comparison to the rest of the world, okay? So it just takes in everybody, but really it just takes in whatever it is you have, okay? Because many have a low income, but they've learned how to live on a low income, so they have some disposable income. And so they, they have the ability to choose what they do. And so just it's a general instruction to people who have something, okay? Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Two things. Don't be conceited about it. Don't think that you're better than somebody else just because you uh, have a larger, uh, larger savings account or whatever it is or more things. Don't be conceited and don't put your hope on that stuff. He didn't say, you know, give it all away. He didn't say, you know, you're in sin because you have, you're rich. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, listen, if you have something, don't be conceited and don't fix your hope on it. But fix your hope who? On whom? On God who richly supplies us with all things to, what's the last word? Enjoy. So if you have a few things, do you have to walk around with your head down? No. I mean, there are some who spiritualize this and say, okay, look at the people in Africa. They have nothing. You have all of this. Should you, be, should, you be, um, should you be sad about it? Should you be long-faced about it? Should you have, you know, should you be in remorse and in mourning and wear a robe of, of hair, you know, and all that kind of stuff because the Lord's blessed you with a few things? No. He doesn't say any of that. Could easily said any of that. Could easily have addressed any of that. He didn't say it. He just said, listen, if you have these things, don't be conceited and don't set your hope on them. Because if your future is sure and you're going to be transformed with a body that's going to match the real you and this life and this world and its works are passing away, then there's really no sense in investing a lot of dollars on what you have around here, okay? If you have stuff, great. Then just make sure that you don't be conceited about it and you're not putting your hope on it. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, instruct them. Now he could have said anything here about this. He just says, instruct them, that's those who have something, those who have some material uh, wealth of some kind to do good. So don't be conceited. Don't put your don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches. So don't don't look at your portfolio and say I'm secure. You're secure in the Lord. If you didn't have that, you'd just be just as secure as you were if you do have it. So instruct them to do good. To be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. So things. You are to do with what you have, along with enjoying what the Lord has given, because he says he has richly given you all things. He supplied you with all things richly to enjoy, whatever that is. So as you're doing that, make sure that when those things come up and you have opportunity, you are rich in good works, you're doing good, you're generous, you're ready to share with whatever you have. And then, here it is. Okay, here's the answer to the question. If you're going to store up treasure in heaven, if you're going to lay up treasure in heaven, here's the answer. Verse 19, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So that's how you do it. You do it in 1 Corinthians 16, 1. You do it in, in, uh, in, in uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 6, verse 19. And we're going to see you can do it in first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. We're going to see how that happens, see. That's how you do it. You do good. You be rich in good works. You be generous. You be ready to share. You take up a collection for for the saints that we saw in First Corinthians chapter sixteen, verse one. Now, the topic obviously is not just peripheral to scripture; it's all through the scriptures. 
scriptures contain more than 500 references to prayer, almost 500 references to faith. But there are more than 2,000 references to money and possessions. Out of 38 parallel, uh, par parables Jesus told, recorded for us in the gospel, 16 of them deal with how to handle our money. Jesus said more about money and possessions than about heaven and hell combined. One out of every 10 verses in the gospels deals with money or possessions. So it's not peripheral. The Lord knows the difficulty we have with it. It can really dominate our thinking. The money can really dominate our life, the, the desire for it, the pursuit of it, the laying up of it, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I'm interested, Sir Thomas More addressed that when he said this, quote, They wonder much to hear that gold, which in itself is so useless a thing, should be everywhere so much esteemed that even men for whom is it was for even men for whom it was made and by whom it has value should yet be thought of less value than it is. I mean, I think people have grasped that pretty early, right? That the money which was made by men and for men is thought to be more important than men are. I read somewhere in a survey, we spend about 50% of our time thinking about money, how to get it, how to spend it, how to save it. And that's not even considering the time we spend thinking of our possessions, the things we've already purchased. And so it can dominate us. So scriptures know that. The Bible knows that uh, through the, the Holy Spirit that that's going to be on our mind. So there's many places where we can tap into this understanding of what it is, how to keep it in proportion. And uh, so there's a lot of teachings about money and material possessions. Proverbs 3, uh, 11, 25 says this. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. There is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. So there's folks out there, Proverbs says, that give away a lot and yet still increase all the more. It doesn't seem to be uh, to make any sense that they give away so much and yet they still have more than they need. And yet there's one who withholds more than that's right. There's people who are very, uh, very stingy with what they have and very minimal on their giving, and that leads to poverty. You would think it'd be the opposite, right? You'd think you'd be laying up all that stuff instead of giving it away, and you'd be more... Uh, more wealthy, but that's the opposite of what happens. Verse 25, the generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Just a general observation from Proverbs, uh, there's this whole other kind of thinking in Scripture over and against the culture, which is get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. And so, you know, I, I would propose to you that there's an opposite type of thinking, and this passage I just gave you in, in Proverbs is precisely that type of thinking. We're going to look at uh, the topic of giving, how we're to give. It's not the only thing we'll look at because there's so many other things about how we look at, at possessions, where they come from, uh, and what does it look like to love things and all of that. We're going to look at all of that as we get into 2 Corinthians. But um, we're precisely going to look at, I think, uh, over the, just the next couple of weeks, uh, part of how to build a portfolio that never depreciates. If, if Jesus said lay up uh, money bags for yourself that don't, uh, that aren't being able to be destroyed or, or stolen or destroyed by moss, there's got to be some way to do that, and so Scripture is going to give us some clarity on how to do that. And so that's what we'll do, and we'll just kind of let the Scripture guide us along. And um, so when we get to you know Second Corinthians eight and nine, it's going to give us a biblical model for the handling of resources, and we'll look at the tithe and the ten percent and what that looked like in the Old Testament, and all that, and we'll refresh your memory on some of that. Some some of you have been with us long enough to have heard that before, some of you perhaps not, and so we'll look at all of that kind of thing. So we can look forward to that as we get in and kind of get an idea of where all that comes from and, and uh, how it applies then to the New Testament. So we'll spend some time there. 
and, uh, and survey a lot of places in scripture that teach us about material wealth and, and where it comes from and how to handle it and all that kind of thing and God's perspective on that and really round out our knowledge on this important topic for our benefit, for our blessing. See, these are things that the Lord gives us as instruction. It's for us to incorporate into our life where he can be a part of that equation uh, that is your, your monetary resources. So, uh, and, and you know, we're going to understand more, I think, and it has a profound interest on uh, what we do. So if we're honest, I think most of us have some guilt uh, associated with our giving or our lack of giving. I mean, it's just kind of how it is in the church or, on our, or our spending. And so usually the last thing we want to do is subject ourselves to something that's going to make us feel worse about what we already feel badly about, okay? And so that's my, not my desire to make you feel worse. It's my desire to make you uh, feel better. Um, you know, we don't want to hear about how we are to give away more of what uh, we are so reluctant to be separated from. And so I hope that as we go through, you'll see the joy that comes from this, the blessing that is part of this uh, faithfulness because of who we are, because of where our kingdom is, because of the fact that we're going to be transformed, because of the fact that earth's going to be destroyed, and all this is sure, see, and you're going to be made new, and you're going to be with the Lord, and you're going to receive an inheritance, and all this stuff is sure for you, see, then these are just other areas that we respond in faithfulness to, because we know we're going to be with the Lord, and we know that the grand accountant someday is going to just take that all into account, what we did, how we did it, and what we did it with, and so these are all very, very important uh, passages, and I think they're very enriching to you. And it'll give you a biblical foundation um, that will put you on that road. And, and so that you know, um, as I go into this passage, I believe we have a very generous giving church. So I'm not talking to people who are selfish. I'm talking to people who meet needs. I'm talking about people who meet needs under the radar all the time here. Okay. So don't think that I think something that I don't think. I think that you're very generous. I think that you're very concerned about giving, uh, laying up treasure where a moth doesn't destroy it. Okay, so understand my own heart here as I talk to you about this. I'm not talking to where you think, perhaps I think that you don't. I think that you do. And so it's kind of my repeat as I think about 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul says, you know, I told you this and you're doing it and just do it all the more. You know, it's just one of those encouraging things where we just refresh our, our understanding of perhaps what we're doing and how we go about it. So, um, you know, in looking for a title of this section, of course, and I've said this before, it, tongue in cheek, I could have just called this stewardship but um, nobody wants to talk about a series on stewardship. I could have called it God's plan to make you wealthy, and I could have fit right in with the modern church, you know, and just, uh, uh, you know, that would have been pretty popular probably at least at first until you got here and heard what I had to say, and then we'd be like, no. Um, but, you know, that wouldn't be entirely untrue, of course, and, and in more ways than just materially. You know, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says, uh, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. I didn't write that. That's just the Lord talking. Uh, Acts 20, verse 35, Jesus tells us, although we don't have record in the gospel where he said it, Acts 20, verse 35, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And, and even the most cursory exam, examination of, of scripture certainly indicates a richness of life that's given as a reward for faithfulness in the way you deal with what you have. Okay, And many of you, many of you could testify to that over and over and over again, okay? You understand how that works. So this is a very common theme in the scripture, Proverbs chapter 15, verse six. Great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but trouble is the income of the wicked. That's just the Lord speaking. That's just a general observation of how that works. When you put the Lord in the uh, financial equation, you allow him to be able to bless you in ways that you were not able to foresee. And so this is, a, this, is, this is the type of uh, teaching that we're going to get into, the type of background I want you to see. Um, there's that story, of course, and many of you have heard this before, a wealthy businessman 
He comes along the docks. He's really disturbed to find a fisherman sitting by his commercial boat. He's not fishing. He's just kind of sitting there, kind of gazing off in the distance. And the businessman says, um, you know, why aren't you out there fishing? And um, the fisherman says, well, because I've caught enough fish for today. And then the businessman says, why don't you go out and continue to catch more fish if you can? And uh, the businessman asks that, um, uh, why don't you do that? And, and of course, the fisherman says, well, what would I do with them? The businessman said, well, you can earn more money. And uh, that was an impatient reply. And, and buy a better boat, and then you can go out deeper, and, and you could catch more, even more fish and make more money. And soon you'd have a fleet of boats, and you'd be rich like me. And then the, the fisherman asked, well, well, then what would I do? And the businessman said, well, then you could sit down and, and enjoy life. And uh, the fisherman looks peacefully across the water and says, well, what do you think I'm doing now? And so there's, there's this whole idea, I think, that, you know, uh, that we have to get more and we have, to, we have to retire as early as we can with as much as we can and then we do nothing for the longest part of time that we can. And so I don't th think any of that aligns with what we see from the scriptures, to be honest. And so I, I hope that wherever you are in your, in your formation of your financial policies for your house, regardless if you've been doing this a long time or maybe just getting started, uh, maybe you haven't done any kind of giving, any consistently, uh, you know, uh, you, you fall into the old joke where the $20 bill meets the $1 bill and, and you know, the $20 bill says, well, you know, the $1 bill says the $20 bill, well, where have you been? And, well, I've been out to eat, I've been to the movies and I went on vacation and the $20 bill says, well, where have you been? To the $1 bill goes, you know, church, 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 church. And, you know, if that's been your, if that's been your experience, then I would suggest that perhaps you're missing out on, on the deeper life the Lord has in store for you if you give him control of uh, what you do with what you have. And so that's kind of where we're going to go. And I realize that I'm kind of, uh, you know, a bunch of different places here. But it's really the introduction I think that we need to make as we move from this just tremendously exciting chapter 15 to this seems like very mundane chapter 16 with a bunch of instructions and some instructions on what we do with what we have. And so I want you to know it's, it's an exciting uh, time that you can, you can see that there's a, there's a whole uh, paradigm shift perhaps for you that could be very encouraging and, and, and a blessing to you. You know, I would say, does Psalm 119, verse 72 reflect your thinking? Is, is this you? Um, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. I mean, be real. Is the law of the Lord's mouth better to you than thousands of coins of gold and silver? Because what it has to say is authoritative, beloved, and, and, uh, and we are blessed when we obey it and we keep it and chasten when we don't. And I think it's important. Does that reflect you? You know, be honest. It should, perhaps, and maybe it doesn't, but it could, and you can certainly make that change if you know the Lord is your Savior. So as we read the Bible, we're going to soon find out as it concerns wealth, you know, we're not supposed to pursue it. We're forbidden to trust in it. We are to attribute wealth, all of it, to the Lord because it all comes from him. And we'll talk more about those things. And there's certainly no refuting that the handling of money and possessions in a biblical manner um, brings about great liberty. It brings about great satisfaction in your life. It brings about a joy-filled time on this earth. It's very enriching. And uh, so we are to be motivated to handle material wealth in a biblical way. You know, and I think that uh, because of the sureness of our future, it's a response to really the inheritance that's coming to you and as part of your sure future. And, uh, you know, I think that when we lay that up front for uh, the future, we understand that. And 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 really are an example then for us to follow. And so let's look there. And just in the time we have, we'll just kind of cover a few of the verses there at the beginning. So turn, if you would, 1 Corinthians 16, 1. Uh, Paul says, so in light of all that, in light of everything we just looked at, in light of this very mundane, appears, teaching, uh, we understand that it's coming on the heels of a sure future. And so Paul can say this and expect those who hear it 
uh, to respond to it. And so he says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. Now this has some context, and it's important to look at it. It has some principles that are universal, and we'll look at those too. But it has some context, and we want to look at that now. Paul starts with this, now concerning. And I think that wording, if you think about it, really takes us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Paul begins saying, now concerning those who are married. And, he, and we, we gave a little background there where Paul was answering some questions from a letter that came from the Corinthian church. They delivered a letter somehow to him, perhaps through Chloe. Perhaps it was uh, you know, oral questions. Paul wrote them down. Whatever it was, he received some, some questions from the church, and then he responded back and gave some answers. And we didn't get the questions. We just got the answers. But as we look at the questions, we can go back and figure out perhaps what they were saying. And I think this is where we are now. Paul uh, answered some questions he received from them. And uh, we saw uh, that church perhaps wrote him a letter. But um, the questions, many of them were about uh, physical relationships, about marriage and divorce, because here's this uh, little church, this island of Christianity and the sea of paganism, and they're all coming out of all the idol worship and temple worship and all the immorality that was going on, and, and uh, perhaps some are saved, some part, a half of a, uh, of a family, perhaps the spouses, one of the spouses are saved, one's not, and they want to know, hey, wouldn't it be better if I just divorced this loser and, we, you know, we get, I get, I marry a, you know, a, a believer and all that kind of stuff. So Paul's answering a lot of those questions they have to do with physical relationships and sexuality and, 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 uh, and immorality, all that kind of stuff. And then he answered a bunch of questions as we saw about spiritual grace. Remember, one of them was, how do you know if somebody's really spirit-controlled? Remember, because they were doing all these types of spiritual gifts, and Paul's like, listen, it, it doesn't matter what they say. This is what you have to do. And so he said, you know, listen to what they say and all that kind of stuff. So he's answering questions. So we get here, and he's doing the same thing. And so as we did before, you know, we start with the answers. We take what we know about the culture traditions. We go backwards then into what Paul would have taught them and what he, the knowledge he would have assumed that they had, and you get the questions. And so he goes, now concerning this, the collection of the saints. And so he's addressing this. And, and so you can imagine then, you know, here's this again, this little island in the Sea of Paganism, and they're used to doing what they want with what they have. And now Paul's giving them some instruction here uh, early on that, hey, I want you to be participate in this collection. Because they're probably thinking, why would I give my money to somebody who doesn't even live here? Why would I even give my money away to begin with? I mean, isn't it mine for me to take care of me and all that kind of stuff? So you can just kind of see, uh, you know, a brand new believer's response. So, okay, now it's time to give away what you love the most. And, you know, they're going to re rebel against that. And I mean, think about it the first time you heard about giving. You know, if you, particularly if you came to faith as an adult and you heard about giving, you're like, okay, hold on. Now they want to get into my pocket and take my money, all right? I knew they were going to say this. I mean, I knew, you, know, you come to church before you're a believer, and somebody talks about taking up the offering, like, why are we doing this? You know, so obviously, even in our culture, where you understand a little bit about giving and about uh, generosity and charity and all the things that go on here, um, imagine this Corinthian church. They don't, they don't have any idea what's going on, so Paul's going to address it. There's some rumors, no doubt. And so he goes, now concerning the collection for the saints. Now, this is a collection for the saints to a ministry in Jerusalem for those who are in poverty. And we've talked about this before, but just to refresh your memory, there was poverty in Jerusalem. And the reason why uh, there was poverty in Jerusalem is because uh, that came about after Pentecost, where many had heard the gospel and had responded, and they had remained in Jerusalem, and they didn't go back home because this little church started that turned into the first megachurch ever in the history of the Christianity. And so this is huge church, thousands of people, and they came to faith here, and they didn't go home. 
And so they moved in with a believer whose homes were in Jerusalem and they didn't have much and so there was poverty. And because of the hatred of many of the Jews towards Jesus and towards his followers, which generated a lot of persecution and a lot of dispossession of homes and the loss of jobs and even imprisonments, Christians had a very difficult time earning a living. And many of them couldn't get a job. And so they are there in Jerusalem and there's a lot of, uh, a, a lot of difficulty there. Many of the fathers of the homes uh, there were put in prison, and so there was nothing to supply for the wife and children. And so there's genuine need here. There's a great need because of the poverty. So in light of that, in light of that need, the Apostle Paul has arranged for a collection, and he has arranged to take an offering and take it back to the saints in Jerusalem to help offset this big need that is there as a result of the church being formed there. Now, as so to some background, there's a passage we looked at not that long ago in Galatians chapter 2, verse 7. So we'll look there right now. Because, you know, you could think about Paul, perhaps, why was this on his heart? Why was uh, this taking this uh, collection so important to him? Because he talks about it in numerous letters that he's written to the churches. And so I think this is important to give us some background there. Paul is meeting with what is called here, what is called the Jerusalem Council. If you will, he wanted his ministry to be in harmony with the church at Jerusalem. And so he had this meeting of sorts with Peter, James, and John. And, and uh, in the meeting... He really called them out for uh, a bending towards legalism and listening to the Jews on some doctrinal issues. And they addressed him about some things about whether the Holy Spirit had actually come and whether the people who were speaking to were true believers. So they had this big discussion. And then they get down to, uh, uh, to verse 7 and they say, Paul says this. He says, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, Verse 8, for he who effectively worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectively worked for me also to the Gentiles. In other words, uh, Paul says, listen, um, God called me to preach primarily to Gentiles. That would be what would be considered the uncircumcised. And God called Peter to preach primarily to the Jews. So Paul makes this note of that and that that's the agreement that they had come to and what they had eventually worked out. In verse 9, he says, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now mark this. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And so right at the very beginning, if you will, if you could call it this, the very ordination of Paul, the beginning of Paul is commissioning or whatever it is, uh, you know, James and Peter and John said, hey, you know, in your ministry among the Gentiles, be quick to remember the poor. And, and so that was on their mind. And of course, they understood this big need in Jerusalem. And then Paul says, that was the very thing I was interested in doing too. So they just resonated with him. He was interested in making sure the poor were taken care of. And so uh, they say this, you know, you go to the Gentiles, but don't forget the poor. And particularly, we understand the poor in Jerusalem, the difficult time that they were having with the church there. And so he's told not to forget. And so, you know, he, he gets, uh, as we read this, as we t taught through the book of Romans, he'd been traveling around Asia Minor and in Achaia and in Macedonia, and he'd been collecting money. And so I readdress re you to Romans chapter 15, and this is a passage we looked at already a number of years ago, but Paul says this, okay? So you kind of get a snapshot and a timeline and why I'm including it here. So you get Paul's, you get Paul's uh, commissioning, and they say, remember the poor, and he says, I'm very interested in remembering the poor. And then Macedonia, it says, and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So Achaia was the place where Corinth was located. So I think you can kind of see the, the timeline here. As we go back to Romans, you realize he's writing about things that he's currently dealing with as we go through 1 Corinthians 16. So he says, listen, you know, the Corinthians there in Achaia, they were pleased uh, to make a contribution, and Macedonia, those who were in Macedonia, and we'll see that's uh, Thessalonian church uh, is going to be included in that. And so 
they were pleased to make a donation. So, so in the letter to the Romans, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, has already happened. He's collected the money. So in the letter to the Corinthians, he's saying, I'm going to come, I want to collect, I want you to make a collection, that, you know, give to the collection, I'm going to collect it. In Romans chapter 15, 26, he's already done that, see. He said, I've already collected, I've been there, they were pleased to do it. Paul says the Macedonians made a very generous contribution, and then when we get to our section in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, We'll look at that model for New Testament giving, where the Macedonians actually made a contribution and became the model for what New Testament giving is going to look like. But when we read first, uh, Romans chapter 15, the Macedonians have already given. So in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, Paul's informing the church about what's going on. This is in his heart. He's been doing this for a while. He's going to take a collection. Please make a, you know, make a, a gift to this collection. And, uh, and he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, so he's collecting it from Galatia, he's collecting it from Achaia, he's collecting it from Macedonia, everywhere he went, he's collecting this money, and there are a few reasons why he's doing this. And he's telling the Corinthians he's going to come there, and he's going to collect money there, and then we're going to see he actually makes a trip to Jerusalem with the money. But there's a few reasons why uh, this is on Paul's mind. First one is this, obviously... You know, when he goes back with the money, he took representatives of all the churches. And we see that in every place where he says, I'm going to take up a collection. He says to them, and there'll be some representatives from the church to go. We see that in 1 Corinthians 16. And there'll be some representatives from the church to go, and perhaps I'll go with them. And so he says this over and over again. So he goes back, we understand, he goes back, and he takes those representatives of all the churches, and he comes back to Jerusalem, finally, and he has this large amount of money for the poor. But he also had representatives from all the Gentile churches with all this money. Because with Paul, it wasn't just a question of money. Obviously, number one, there's this need that Paul felt, and it was important that the church meet it. Paul told Titus in, in chapter, Titus chapter 3, verse 14, uh, teach the people this. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds and meet pressing needs so they will not be unfruitful. So part of being a believer in the church, Paul says to Titus, is to be able to realize that there are pressing needs, and you can meet them, and you should. Okay, and when we talk more in depth about how to handle money, we understand, you know, paying our bills is at the top, uh, making sure because that's our testimony, and then as we set aside some, we give some, we save some, we don't use everything that we have, and we're able to meet pressing needs, and many of you do that, okay? But Paul says, listen, tell this new church, you know, learn to engage in good deeds, meet pressing needs, and so Paul is just saying, okay, to all these churches, there's a pressing need in Jerusalem, you should know how to meet pressing needs, I'm going to come around to all these churches, take up this collection, and so that's what he's doing. And there's a need, and so Paul said it's important to meet it. But there was more on Paul's heart than making certain a, a, a contribution was given to the poor in Jerusalem. Or poor of the saints, if you will, literally, in Jerusalem, so their needs were met. And this is number two, okay? It was a way to soothe two factions in the church that we have spoken of already, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Okay, and somehow, we are, there we go. So, Reason two, you can soothe these two factions in the church that have spoken of already, Jewish believers, Gentile believers. There's you know, always some question about what's going on in either place. And so Paul says, listen, it's not just about meeting needs. It's also about being in fellowship with one another. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, he wants to send along representatives from the church and letters from the church to tell this Jerusalem church that they love them, to demonstrate that there's a relationship there so there'd be a face-to-face -face with the check. So it wasn't just kind of uh, send the check with Paul and let's just, just forget about it. Paul says, listen, there's an investment here we want to make. And so fellowship was the issue here. And when you have fellowship, then you understand where the needs are and you're united in a way that a check by itself could never accomplish. So I would say to you, beloved, and just as a side note, if you're missing out on most of the fellowship things that we're doing here, you are also missing out on knowledge of the needs that need to be met, okay? 
There might be all kinds of reasons why you don't come. I get it, okay? But the fact of the matter is that fellowship is always that vehicle by which the church becomes more intimate with one another. And you already know this. If you're meeting these immediate needs, you found them out, perhaps, at a Bible study, or you found them out at Acts 2.46, or or PTA, or you found them out when we were doing some ministry together in fellowship, okay? That's just how that works, Wednesday night uh, meal. You found out there was a need, you set up an opportunity to meet the need, and you met it, okay? So fellowship is an issue here with Paul. So he doesn't just want to send a check, he wants to make sure people are coming along, and there's a face-to-face, and they understand each other, and they they meet each other, they understand what the needs are. So he's going to bring the money, relieve some of the distress that's caused by uh, the poverty, but he also wants to make sure they demonstrate some unity in the church. That this Gentile church is coming and seeing the Jerusalem church and they're just getting together in fellowship and they're learning about each other and they're able to see that as a priority and that's important, okay? And so, as we've seen, unity of the church is a priority for Paul and all the way through 1 Corinthians, he's made that very much uh, at the forefront. He's addressed it almost right at the beginning as the main problem in the Corinthian church that was not unity and so he dealt with those things and Paul's still about that because you can't have effective ministry if you don't have unity and you don't have a strong base of people who know that and practice that, then you can't expand. And so Paul is about that. And then first, uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 27, really comments on the attitude of the Gentile churches. They were pleased to do so. So remember, to get to Romans, all this has all taken place. In 1 Corinthians 16, he's saying, I'm going to come. Okay, and when we get to 2 Corinthians 8 9, he's telling, uh, you know, he's talking about the Thessalonians in Macedonia and that they uh, made a great contribution. So we get to Romans 15, it's all happened. And Paul says, listen, not only did they do it, they were pleased to do it. In other words, it, it pleased the saints in Macedonia, it pleased the saints in Corinth, Achaia, to give money. And so we'll see that the church in Corinth responded correctly to Paul's admonition here. Uh, we can understand that they did it because they wanted to do it. Uh, they did it because it was in their heart to do it. They did it because of love. They did it because Paul told them it was right. They did it because there was a connection and fellowship between uh, these Gentile churches and the church in Jerusalem. And then we see this in our background look at this collection. Uh, Paul says of the Gentile churches, and they were indebted to them. So the third reason, there's a collection taken up for the Jewish Christians because of an indebtedness. And I think it's safe to say that that's still the case. All of us who are, who are Gentile believers have a great debt we owe to the Jew. The Old Testament written by Jewish authors, of course. Uh, we would never have the word of God if it weren't for Jewish authors. Jesus said in John 4.22, salvation is of the Jews. I mean, our salvation is a result of uh, the prophets and all those things, God working through them, and we have this. Uh, it was preached by Jewish apostles. The first church in Jerusalem was Jewish, and it was that church that really sent out first missionaries to Antioch seven years afterwards and, and founding and really evangelizing uh, this group of Gentiles. It was uh, the great Jew Paul who preached to the Gentiles, you know, the great Jew Peter who preached to the Jews. Uh, you know, the Gentile church owes its life on a human level to Jewish indebtedness, and if you are a non-Jew, you're in that debt. And so Paul says, listen, there's a bunch of reasons why we should do it. Obviously, there's a need. We want to meet it. But secondly, you know, there's, we want to sue these two factions and make sure there's unity and make sure there's fellowship. Thirdly, this collection's taken for Jewish Christians because of indebtedness. So when Paul says, I want to take up a collection, understand these three reasons are in the play. He's going to make sure that they understand that this is the case. Then we read the rest of verse 27. He explains it, uh, that debt more clearly. He says, for if the Gentiles have shared in there, that's the Jews' spiritual things, they are also indebted to minister to them also in material things. So that collection then was taken for an indebtedness and also for unity and for fellowship and it was a, to meet an immediate need. And so these are, the, these are the background things that are filling in now. As Paul says, I want you to take up this collection. These are the things, these are the reasons why this is the case. Paul had this on his heart from the beginning, right? From his commissioning 
you know, uh, Peter and James and John said, listen, remember the poor. Paul says, I'm, I'm already remembering the poor. And here's the thing, you know, you can have a debt to do something and still do it willingly, right? I mean, you can know that you owe something and you can still do it with joy, correct? I mean, it's not exclusive of each other. You can be pleased to do it. Paul says the Gentile churches did just that. And then in verse 28, it says, Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I'll go on by way of you to Spain. I've put my seal on this. Sephardizo, a legal term. It's a, one of authentication. To place something beyond doubt. It could be used to prove one's testimony to a person uh, that he, he is what he professes to be. So the Jews originally were a little bit skeptical about whether Gentiles could be converted. They didn't think you could be a believer without becoming a Jew, and that's some of the stuff Paul had to talk to them about, uh, Peter and James and John, when he went and had that uh, Jerusalem council. So this offering is on Paul's heart. It's what Peter, James, and John wanted him to remember when they commissioned it. Paul said it was on his mind too. Paul takes the fruit, and what is that? Uh, well, that's this big offering. It's the fruit. And what is it the fruit of? What's it the fruit of? It's the fruit of salvation. You understand that, right? I mean, I think if we think about Zacchaeus, the one thing we can understand about Zacchaeus is, how do you know Zacchaeus came to faith? I mean, be real about it. I mean, I mean, obviously the Bible tells us that, you know, salvation has come to this house. But we really know that Zacchaeus came to faith. How? Because that's, that's right. As soon as he came to faith, what did he say? I'm repaying back everything I stole. He's given away the very thing that he has hoarded his entire life. See, and I think this is the very thing that Paul's talking about here. He says, listen, this is a seal on fruit. The Gentile churches obviously have come to faith and they are showing forth fruit. But this seal really is this offering where they willingly give stuff away and they take up this collection for this need, the needy folks in Jerusalem. This is the seal of, of salvation, of this fruit. He says, you know, I can't come by you to Spain until I perform this uh, and I have, this, I have sealed to them this fruit. So when they willingly do this, they show forth that they are truly born again. And we've said this over and over again, but I'll just say it again. You know, as you look at your digital register of your checkbook, you can tell where your heart is. You can tell if you're truly born again, okay? I mean, think about your register and think about someone who's unsafe. And how much does yours resemble theirs, okay, when it comes right down to it? Where do you lay up your treasure? Is your treasure somewhere else or is it here? See? And again, it's not about, you know, if you have, the less you have, the more spiritual you are. It isn't anything about that. It's about where your treasure truly is. You know, are you generous? Are you faithful? Are you sacrificial? Those kinds of things that we'll look at, you know, you'll understand that this, this fruit of salvation has been sealed to you when you're willing to give away what's most valuable to you. And so this money was the proof of the transforming power of the gospel to the Gentiles. And we are completely out of time. So that's exactly what New Testament giving is all about. Okay, in 2 Corinthians 9, 13, I'll just put this verse up here and let you see it, and we're going to close out. This is, this, this is exactly what Paul's going to talk about later on in this second letter for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints so talking about the same collection okay but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to god so in other words when the gift arrives and it's starting to meet needs people are giving thanksgiving and who are they giving thanksgiving to wow lord you provided have you ever been in a tight spot and you know some believer they they helped you tremendously and who did you give thanks to i mean you were grateful to them but you were mostly grateful to to the Lord. I mean, you just, 
the Lord knew your need and he met it through someone who was, who was uh, willing and had the fruit of salvation going on in their life. And so that's the whole idea. Many thanksgivings to God because of the proof of given by this ministry, they'll glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. So here's the thing. The proof of the ministry of this giving allows them to give glory to God because they know you're born again and, and you've responded in generosity to an immediate need. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. And then it just creates this bond that's there, this unity, this wonderful uh, commonality and, and uh, family that is part of, uh, of the church. A generous gift of love was fruit demonstrating a transformed life among the Gentiles. And that's where we're going to have to stop for today. So here's the thing. That's a little bit of the background of this passage. That's what's going on here when Paul comes to this Corinthian. He's going to come to this Corinthian church and say, look, I already have this set aside. I'm going to come pick it up. We see in Romans, they did it because they were, they were willing to do it. And Paul takes it. It was very successful, and it created this bond of overflowing thankfulness and all that stuff. So only a, only a couple verses on the collection here in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. But it fits together as a part of a much larger pattern of submission and generosity and, and sacrificiality and the attitude of thankfulness and faithfulness and fruit bearing that we're going to see over and over again as we handle what the Lord has given us. And so that's kind of where we're going. So uh, I hope that that is a, a, something you're looking forward to. It's going to be a joy, I think, to, to talk about. It's only a few verses, and so we'll spend that in proportion and move on to his instructions about other things. But uh, that's where the Lord has us, and I, I think that it'll be a blessing for us and a reminder as, we, as you have continued to be generous and, and faithful to continue to do that all the more. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you would. Lord, we thank you today for a great opportunity, again, to be in your word. We thank you for the clear teaching that it pr provides for us. We thank you for the, the pattern of, of giving and generosity and faithfulness and sacrificiality in our giving that is part of that big picture of uh, everything that we have belongs to you. And so we give some of that away because we understand that we have an inheritance. We show forth the fruit of our salvation, that there's immediate need we can meet it, that uh, all these things are ways that we acknowledge and worship you as the giver of everything we have. We're not, we're not hoarding it because we're afraid we won't have more. We're, we're giving it away because we know that you are the provider of all that we have anyway. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we can trust you with all of that, that you're so faithful. And these are your verses, not ours. We're not manufacturing uh, the blessing that comes from faithfulness and monetary things. You've already told us over and over again and given us that example over and over again in the word. So, Father, I pray that we'll uh, begin to adjust our thinking if we need to, that we'll be encouraged in what we're doing, if that's the case, uh, that we'll be able to evaluate and all that in a way that uh, is not biased by the world and, the, and all the desires of the world. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.